Hey folks, welcome to episode one of Sauropod, or the Society of Reluctant Anthropologists podcast. Now don't let the name fool you, this is a podcast for everyone, not just anthropologists. We will be interviewing people who are doing all kinds of cool things, imagining new possibilities, and thinking deeply about a bunch of different topics. For this episode, though, you'll hear us three hosts, Maureen, Sahil, and me, Nayantara, talk about how we became the Society of Reluctant Anthropologists, why we decided to do a podcast, and a little bit about why we're asking these questions. First, a bit of housekeeping. You'll hear some bleeps. That's where we forgot to censor ourselves and use people's names. There's also a bit of a shift in audio quality about halfway through. It will get better in the second half. Just bear with us. We're still figuring out our tech. And lastly, this is a bit of a long episode. We don't anticipate future episodes being this long, but the conversation was so good we had to keep it going. You can't blame us. We've been friends for over a decade. We had a lot to talk about. So, welcome to the Society of Reluctant Anthropologists. Nayantara, Sahil, and Maureen here for our first episode. Today we'll be getting into who we are and what the heck Sora is. So let's start by doing a round robin introduction of ourselves. My name is Maureen Pritchard. Um, I graduated my, with my PhD in anthropology from the School of Oriental and African Studies. Uh, I did my master's degree in ethnomusicology at OSU, and I have a bachelor's in Slavic studies. My intellectual interests, aside from being a mom and gardening, are, uh, hmm, I'm really interested in, in all aspects of music and what music does for us as people. So in ethnomusicology, we call that musicking. I'm very interested in musicking. Um, and what have I done since the PhD, I, I think I've done absolutely everything. I've worked in a garden store. I've uh, worked a bunch of customer service jobs. And uh, my favorite thing that I did was work as a case manager for people suffering from very severe and debilitating um, mental illnesses. Um, and I, I liked that job because it put all of my anthropological skills to use. I can go next. I think I'm always like <laughs> waiting. I'm like, ah. it's like being in school again, isn't it? Yeah. Like, well, so my name is Sahil. I um, like Nantar Maureen did a PhD uh, at SOAS and um, a master's in law and anthropology at LC, and then a bachelor's at what Nantar and I like to joke at a small boutique university in Washington, D.C. called Georgetown <laughs> in um, foreign service. Um, so uh, a bit like Maureen, I actually was going to study musicians and I've got something with a PhD and ended up working with Afghan migrants in Delhi. Um, my intellectual interests, as Maureen said, I think are varied, uh, kind of, uh, but as a whole, I think I'm interested in questions of social complexity and how uh, to understand that 
and as well as um, looking at how you know nonverbal communication, so music, memory, emotions, these kinds of things uh, are intrinsic to uh, community building as a complicated process. Um, since the PhD, uh, I've also done several things. I've uh, worked with the National Health Services and mental health research and development. I kind of fell into doing public health anthropology uh, work at a university, quit my job, and have done consulting for lawyers, writing expert anthropological reports for uh, asylum cases, uh, consulting with development organizations, and mostly with the WHO these days, doing new vaccine introductions and uh, antimicrobial resistance, and but I also co-lead a uh, religious community here in the UK. That's it for me. So Nayantara. Hi, I'm Nayantara. Um, I think also like place is sort of important. So I'm outside of Philadelphia, Maureen is in Columbus, Ohio, and Sigil is in London. So you're kind of not London, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm usually, I'm, Often in London, UK. <laughs> He's also a globetrotter, so unlike the rest of us. It's really important they can't see our videos. We can post some of this. <laughs> Why not? We're not doing this for anyone. Sorry. Sorry, teacher. <laughs> so I'm Nayantara. I'm outside of Philadelphia. I also, well, I did three quarters of a PhD at SOAS with Maureen and Sahil. Um, I did my master's at Goldsmiths, which is what made me think I wanted to do a PhD in the UK or do a PhD period. That was a bad idea. Um, and then I have a bachelor's in film production from Temple, Go Owls. Let's see, intellectual interests. I don't know. What are, what are my interests? I have recently taken up oil painting. I don't know if I've told you guys this yet. But I've recently taken up oil painting and it's so exciting and it's so messy. And I think that's what I really like about it is it just, it gets everywhere. It's all over your hands and things like that. Um, but otherwise, really like my interests are breaking shit, uh, working with communities to break systems and institutional violence and things like that. So that's what I've been doing also since my PhD. Well, I worked in advertising, then I started a nonprofit, then I worked in philanthropy and now I'm a consultant. And I get to help people break shit, which has been really, really, really fun. Um, and I think also this is why I've been telling everyone I'm going through an adult goth phase. I started wearing all black. And I think this might be why I think I'm getting back to like my teenage self where I was like angry at everything and kind of an anarchist. And then I like unlearned all of that, or I guess the world sort of beat it out of me. And then now I'm back to like, being an anarchist and angry anarchist, an angry god anarchist. So that's a little bit about me. Very good. It really is like being in school. Maureen's such a teacher. I am such a teacher <laughs> because my parents are teachers and I just that's can't true. And also Sahil and I can be a bit feral at times. So <laughs> it's probably for the best. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Let's go again and have each of us state what we understand 
to be the nature of this podcast and what we hope to bring to it or gain from it. And don't dare start with me. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe we just go in reverse order. All right, fine. Reverse Uno. Reverse Uno. <laughs> reverse card. Um, okay, so the nature of this podcast. Uh, for me, personally, what I'm really interested in is, A, what is knowledge? I think especially as coming from an anthropology background and being a brown woman in anthropology who was told that they were a native anthropologist and had to jump through all these other hoops. Like, what is the nature of knowledge? What is knowledge? What is the academy producing and reproducing as that like idea of knowledge? And I think the other aspect of that that I'm personally really interested in is like in our with the access to technology that we have and the quote unquote democratizing of access to knowledge, what is the future of the academy? And that to me is like really, I mean, it's a really personal interest, but it's something that I think will be explored as we talk to people in this podcast and learn about all these other experiences and all these other viewpoints and all of that. I think that I think everyone has kind of a thought on that. So that's what I'm interested in. And I don't think that's what this podcast is about, but I think that's what I bring to our kind of collective vision of this podcast. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it, we've had this conversation, obviously. It's always really interesting for me to see how there's sort of this base from which we're all coming. But I mean, because I'm also interested in this question of, you know, what is knowledge, but also how do we value it? Like why certain kinds of knowledge are valued, you know, how, you know, that's really shaped in my view. Yeah. By sort of this, you know, by like neoliberal, whatever, capital, <laughs> like uh, understanding the value. But also I think, you know, during what prompted me actually to sort of go into the PhD and I, I but I think Maureen and I are probably on the same page as this, like is also that like, knowledge is always being produced and this you know so this other question is not so much about okay well how do we value it but then also how do we recognize like other ways uh -huh. knowledge is produced and in not just as it's happening but how can we imagine something you know right. different for the future and that's i guess what my um my interest is and i i think that all of these things are deeply intertwined yeah, for sure, for sure. Agreed. I think um, I just have this whole problem with the phrase knowledge production. I'm just unsure of what I think about it. And I think it's actually because Sahil and I agree on something, which is that what we know isn't always put into words or written form. Like there are things that we know that we don't know that we carry in our body or in our senses. and it's just because of the way we define knowledge, it just gets weird calling it knowledge production. So I, I have tension. I'm here to bring tension with the phrase knowledge production. Um, but also uh, something I'm I'm really looking forward to in this podcast. Um, we've we've been having a conversation for like ten years now, and uh, we're enjoying it. But I I'm really interested in in finding other people who share aspects of this conversation and just hearing whatever it is they have to say and 
just kind of expanding the conversation out more. Um, and I'm, I'm also interested in, in kind of creating this community through this podcast of people who yes. are in, they may or may not be working in academia, but they definitely have a relationship to the world outside of academia and need some support in that relationship. So I, I'd like that this podcast to serve them. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know about, I'm sure you guys have also experienced this, but all the people that we've met in the 10 years since leaving the academy, has it been 10 years? Um, leaving our PhD programs, I should say. Uh, we've met like all these people from all walks of life who ha maybe have roots in the academy or are thinking about going into a PhD program or came out of a graduate program for whatever reason or graduated or whatnot. And they have these really interesting trajectories. And because we've been sort of dissecting our own, tri uh, dissecting our own, tri why can't trajectory. I say that? Trajectory. Oh my gosh. I just said it too. Um, I think it's really interesting to see kind of what the possibilities are, you know, boundless, but let's take a look at some other ones. Uh, yeah. It's going to be exciting. That's all. It I'm is. Saying. Yes. <laughs> So something our listeners don't know is that this is take two of our podcast because we just had too much fun in the first one and we decided it was too much of an inside conversation and no one would be able to follow it. So we're re-recording. Which is why Maureen is a teacher this time to like keep us on track. Yes, that's why I'm here being teacherly. <laughs> so in listening to ourselves, we concluded that what we were really talking about was community building. And yeah, this sounds so stereotypical for us anthropologists <laughs> to be interested in community building, but it's interesting, and we will explain to you why in a few minutes. <laughs> so let's. Nobody knows it, uh, but we all met in our PhD program at SOAS, and uh, let's walk our listeners back to the day the three of us sealed our friendship over a cup of weasel food coffee and the surrounding details. Um, I think one of you found me in the lobby of SOAS and I wasn't friends with any of y'all, um, but you guys had like developed a friendship, but one of you was like, come get coffee, come get food with us. And I don't remember yeah, which we one. We kind of dragged you along. I think we yeah. conspired, like yeah. he and I conspired because I remember being in on it, but I don't, I think he dragged you in. Oh, that's very funny. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, we conspired. And I mean, I remember, yeah, Maureen and I, I remember, I remember being together and being like, hey, we're going. You should come. <laughs> A bit like those twins. <laughs> come drink we... coffee with us. <laughs> and we the one from still... the shiny. <laughs> Was it... Did we get something to eat too, or did we just get coffee? No, we went for food. I think the whole premise was food, but then we said we still put coffee on the menu. And they had like a half page dedicated to it with an illustration of a weasel on it. We were like, this must be special. Let's combine all of our little graduate school pennies to buy one cup of weasel poop coffee. And yeah, and share it. And then the yeah. people next to us thought we were drunk because we were being so silly. I don't know if this is correct, but like my memory of this is that actually there was a place. So we went to a Vietnamese place 
but next it was actually this kind of fast food Indian place. And we had, we were like, let's get food. And we're just walking. And then there's like, oh, there's this place. And it was like, where should we go? Indian or Vietnamese? And I think nine times out we're like, we're going to Vietnamese. <laughs> like, because, and let's say this for listeners, right. we are both South Asian. And yeah. we just, like, didn't want to have more South Asian food. Not and also, it was a Indian restaurant full of white people in Soho. Oh, God. Yeah, we definitely didn't want to go there. <laughs> I feel like so duped now that you guys are Your old friend, you were shy. Yeah, I, I wasn't thought that you were shy and that you just, you know, no, did that extra little push out with us instead of realizing that you thought we were all mad. It's all epic. <laughs> I didn't think you were mad. I thought <laughs> I was just a bitch. <laughs> just like you mean you were an angry anarchist who wanted to break things, but you didn't know it. But I yes, I had forgotten that part of myself, and so it came out as like an angry reality TV show contestant because I wasn't <laughs> there to make friends. <laughs> ten here we are, ten years later. Um, yeah. Well, what what happened post Weasel Poop? Honestly, I don't remember. I think maybe <laughs> we got drunk off the Weasel Poop coffee. Not immediately after. I'm talking about the snacks and the colors. Scrubta. Uh, can't forget about like, let, Okay, okay. Let's start the vodka, guys. Let's explain what Sora is and what Sora stands for. The okay. past, the past stage. Sora. Okay. Me. Go for another. I just talked a lot about how much of a bitch I was. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so Sora is a society of reluctant anthropologists, and it is a group that we co-created with our entire PhD cohort, though I guess in the same way that you two schemed to eat with me. We schemed, the three of us, to <laughs> get everyone in on this. Um, and so Sora was, I mean, you know, it wasn't anything official. We just kind of jokingly called ourselves this because we hung out all the time and um, spent a lot of time together, more so than cohorts previous to us. Um, and it was also a way, it was a way of building community at the heart of it that allowed us to support each other um, in what was a really difficult situation yeah. for all of us. So like, I don't know how much detail I should go into. Well, we can get into all that detail as we're, as we unfold, but I just want to add like, like the sheer fact that we decided to call ourselves Sora, like it wasn't like we decided to invent Sora and then get people to join. It was mm. like, because of all the, unhappiness that was our PhD, we were like banding together in little groups. And then we were like trying to band the little groups into bigger groups. <laughs> and yeah. pretty soon we were like wandering around trying to find places to eat, but as a herd, like no longer as three people seeking weasel food, but as 10 people, <laughs> we didn't even know what we were seeking. Remember that time that we were looking for something to eat and we were just all following each other and no one knew where we were going. and 
we had yeah. to stop and discuss this at some point. So, yeah, I think it was the entire cohort. It was the entire cohort. So that and, was like 15 people. It was 18 when we started, but I think by the time, I think it was 15 by towards the end. But I think it might be useful also for listeners to mention that, you know, in our PhD program, and I, I don't know, I don't think it's the same in the US, but here in the UK, it's really easy to be atomized. You're treated as individual students and people mm -hmm. often don't come together. Of course, it differs from institution to institution. But at SOAS, we were treated as individuals doing a PhD and we would come together twice a week, or was it once a week? For once a week, once week for two, twice in one day. For twice in one day, yeah. once a week for two quote unquote courses. Well, what oh, was the course? Had the, we had the ethnography course of for half the year, it was twice a week. That one was Ed's one, right? Yeah, because Ed's was on Tuesdays. Yeah, right. And so we had seminar was on Mondays and stats was on Mondays. Yes. So and can, I, wait, can we just say for the audience, it was like four hours of statistics on Monday morning, right? Like at 8 a.m. or something. It was the worst form of torture. And I think it was, so that statistics was later in the year, right? Yeah, because Maybe we had the, the ethnography semester. class the yeah. half of the year. Um, uh, I, the think the, methods. I think the statistics also helped sort of bring us together because it was. Yeah, we had that one hour gap between yeah. stats and research. And I think we all really struggled with statistics because we weren't a sociology department. No. We were really like a very artsy anthropology department. And there were, it was. No one like was a, prepared. But it was also an inter-university course. So you had anthropology students from UCL, anthropology students from LSE, and the anthropology cohort from SOAS all in one room. And you could really tell, you know, the LSE people were like, you know, doing, they were doing all these projects where they're going to look at herd migrations and statistics and whatnot. And, you know, the UCL people were doing like urban, like how many footfall, blah, blah. And we were all here talking about feelings and emotions and <laughs> affect and had nothing to do with statistics. And I think, and we're all, we basically were the bad kids that sat in the back of the room. Yeah, we all sat in the back of the room. And I think just for the listeners who aren't going through a, a UK university system, like we didn't have any choices over what courses we took. Yeah. We also didn't, I don't think we got syllabuses really or anything. We just, they just like literally were like, show up in this place at this time on this day and you will learn something. But we didn't know the reason why we were taking exactly. it. Exactly. We receiving I grades. Like we we didn't, didn't know about what was going on. We didn't even know about the statistics course until the end of the first semester. I don't think that yeah. that was something no. that they told us and about. The reason was, that it wasn't something that we were required to do. But in that first semester, uh -huh. there were the budget cuts and there were a whole bunch of things. And then they instituted this as a new thing that had to be done. But I think that going back just a little bit for our listeners, like one, you know, when, when Maureen was talking about us, like kind of, you know, walking around as a, as a horde, um, it was also because then every day on a Monday, we would all find ourselves kind of, you know, brain dead together 
outside of SOAS on winter morning, <laughs> winter evenings, not knowing what to do. So it wasn't just that. I mean, sometimes we did come together as, as a cohort, but we did have this one occasion every week for a long time where we would just find ourselves together. That's true. Yeah. It sort of pushed us together. Yeah. 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 And we went, we like moved, right? We had to move from wherever it was, UCL campus. And we all had to like walk together to SOAS and we just kind yeah, of was a hurried time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, we started talking to each other then. And you know what else I think made us kind of the weird people in that group is I'm just realizing because, so one of the things that we had instituted as part of Sora was every Monday we would pick a color between ourselves and everyone would wear something that that was that color, right? So For example, think, today we're all wearing something purple. No, I'm not wearing anything purple. But you my hair lighting. That's true. My okay. earrings wouldn't fit under my headphones. <laughs> so, okay, keep going. <laughs> um, and so I think that also made us weird because all the SOAS kids would be wearing the same color and sitting in the back and like giggling that we didn't know anything because it was just the strain of it was becoming ridiculous. So I think we also then separated ourselves in that way from the very serious other students there i say kids we were all in our like mid to late 20s <laughs> we're almost 30 <laughs> or for yourself <laughs> can we talk about the colors a little bit yeah so i was actually i, I was going to say something about that while you were talking on that was really interesting to me that you kind of said it like you know we we separated ourselves from those sort of you know lse students because I always kind of saw it, you know, we introduced the colors kind of at this point. So we didn't start off all wearing the same colors, right? No. Like, it came at this point when we had to start doing a presentation on our potential research project. And I think at this point, we didn't know it. Later, we did, right? But that all of us were sort of being gaslit. And we, not that we had the word for that at that point. But we were all being sort of psychologically abused by people and institutions. The department. The department. Yeah. But um, I mean, I, I could also say individuals that they're not there anymore. So, but, you know, like, and I think, like, you know, it was sort of this way to be seen as well. Because initially it was like, all right, if we do this, we're supporting you. We're supporting each mm -hmm. other. It wasn't just like that we were like differentiating ourselves. I also feel it, right. like it was also like we were not being seen for who we were as it was a department. I think subconsciously something is this way for us to like be there for each other and be like, we see you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's fill the listener in for a second. Yeah. So in the UK system, at least at SOAS, you know, you show up and your first year is your upgrade year. And your upgrade is, it's kind of like in the States when they do, uh, what the heck is it called? The exams before you yeah. are a PhD student? Like qualifiers? No, it's... I can't think of the word. But so what you do is you have to come up with this document. Comps. Sorry. What oh. Comps. No. Your... Yeah, your comps. Like that. Isn't that Comprensive? when you. No. Yeah. It's there's a different word, but let's not get distracted on it. Yeah. Come no. Maybe um... it's different at Georgetown. <laughs> yes. The rest of us went to state schools. <laughs> so the upgrade is like a research proposal that you have to do all your, you're supposed to do all your background reading. 
funnel that all into the proposal um, to show that you've got, you know, everything that you need to know. And then there's an exam on it, just like you would have an exam for like a defense for your dissertation. There's mm -hmm. a defense of that upgrade paper. And then you get to go on to do your field research. So there was a lot at stake. Like if you don't upgrade, you don't go any further in the program. And we took no classes, two classes, well, three classes that we found really pointless. So we had our ethnographic methods class that for me, I'd already taken like four other ethnographic methods class. Uh -huh. we, we had a lot of fun making fun of that class. Then we had to do stats class, which we already said we didn't With like. Youth lab. We oh, had to take yeah, that too. audit, so to speak, that um, where we learned about all the literature of anthropology before anthropology happened, like like from like the time that writing was invented until the Wait, Victorian age. I didn't take that. I didn't, I didn't have to do that. that. It was so stupid. Because we did master's. That were oh, anthropology in on anthropology. Oh my god! Yes, anthropology. We only got the Karl Marx. That's hilarious. It was so oh. wait. Uh, was it social theory? Yes, yeah, social theory and anthropology, or something like that. It was. It was. Oh, I, I loved. I loved having Manas as our instructor. That was the only thing that made it worthwhile. Of course, it thought was stupid, and then. So we had to, we took those four courses and then we had to do this upgrade, upgrade paper in which we were kind of left to our own devices and just told, well, this isn't working or you need to read this and you need to factor these things in. And we were just sort of cobbling together these papers. And then in the research seminar, at the beginning of the year, we were doing, we were being asked to like present different. Uh, we had to read texts. And yeah, we had to read text and that we with a partner we got like partnered and then we had like some text that we would choose and then we had to present something about it and like whether or not it's well so we were given that or something we were, give, we were also given text so trevor basically was like gave us a bunch of texts and then like it was like there were different oh you choose within the uh, because i feel like oh! chose so it must have been like we were given two or three and chose one out of those. I mean, you could also do whatever he wanted and revealing. That's true. Having as a partner for the first like little part of the year, I think, kept his wrap away from me because <laughs> um, I like hid underneath his white Yeah, his like white manness. Well, also I, his inherent Irish charm. Let's say that too. He was very charming. And luck. He truly had Irish. Charm. That's yeah, true. That is, that true. is true. Yeah. Uh -huh. I'll have to tell you about the Paris story one day. You did tell me about Paris story, but we can talk about that again. I vaguely remember. On the podcast. They don't know. Yes. We will. We'll get to it. But hold on. We're getting off topic. Yeah. Um, so at the beginning of this research seminar, we had to read these texts and then, and we partnered up and that's sort of was where Sahil and I first partnered up because we were interested in stuff that nobody else was interested in, except Nyan Tar was secretly interested in. <laughs> um, and then later got interested in. <laughs> oh yeah, he sort of joined it, but grudgingly because he was all like, 
into statistics. They are. <laughs> yeah. So then at towards the end, we had to present our what we were doing our upgrade on or some version of our upgrade. And that was super stressful because what happened in that class was we established, we didn't, the convener established a very, an environment where criticism was encouraged, but it was not constructive criticism. It was just critique. Not even for the critique. sake of critique. It, it was, was yeah. for the sake of critique criticism with nothing positive it was definitely That's like true. down the person like okay just for the audience to be aware of how ridiculous it got like it got so out of hand at one point someone asked Yusahil like why you haven't taken into account the difference between ethnic and ethic ethics yeah. the work that you're doing I'm like looked very proud of themselves and the convener also was like oh yeah why didn't you take into account the difference between ethnic and ethics and uh, like okay the person who asked the question english is not their first language but for the convener english was his first language and he still was like yes because someone has said something mean that is a legitimate question as opposed to, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think also he kind of had it out for me, as we now know. Mm -hmm. But just for the listeners, I was talking about ethics and morality. And nothing to do. And I did mention that there are various ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. So I guess the words were out there. <laughs> so I think, I think the important thing here is that our stress levels were skyrocketing. Like, mm -hmm. They started out high enough because you know we were in a new in a PhD program that's stressful it was stressful in and of itself but then they were just skyrocketing because of like the department really liked the fact that everyone got afraid and paranoid you know they kind of fed off of that energy and so they stoked that energy which I think worked with some people and probably could have taken much more of a hold had Sora not sort of started existing as a collective, you so, know, before the name or anything, but yeah. Can we right. talk for a minute about how the department stoked that? Like we, we talked about kind of making us run a rat race, not letting us see, like not, not doing things that we felt were to our benefit mm. and having this, research seminar which was definitely us criticizing one another yeah what else did the department do to stoke that i mean the big one was the library books i don't want to name names but you know one person started getting convinced that other people were taking books out of the library that they needed for their upgrade on purpose Right. And I remember it coming to a head in one of these Monday sessions and the convener not saying anything. I mean, he looked pleased. Again, he looked very pleased that this was happening. I think. Right? Oh, no. Like, go ahead. I think there are like two things. And you're absolutely right. Because on the one hand, the department itself functioned like that. The department itself was an extremely toxic place where people were in camps. Or, I mean, it's not unusual, but. 
it was like the way they operated was a lot of like backstabbing, you know, kind of coming together against someone. But then I think the way the department, sort of, I, let's be honest, the convener mm-hmm. that was then transferred to us in a way was as what I was saying earlier was like atomize us and try to really prevent us from thinking that we are a cohort. Uh-huh. And the way for me that that happened was, and I think this is, I, it was for everyone, we would have, we were supposed to have regular meetings with our supervisors, which didn't happen for most of us. And when they did, it was extremely unhelpful. But the convener, the convener then would have, make us have a meeting with him at some point in which each one of us were individually told that the problem was with us and nobody else was having a problem. And at some point, we later found that this was being said to each one of us. But it just, you know, I think like there was this real attempt to make sure that we were in our own world and scared. And later, I don't remember who it was, but someone told me basically the convener felt that they had taken on too many students in our year because we had 18 people. And so his job is that of having to weed out, quote unquote, um, those people who are not probably worthy or intellectual enough or something in his opinion to be anthropologists and do PhDs and get the department statistics up to where they needed to be in terms of people graduating. So that's man. But we're all shaking our head because this is new information. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I feel like I've kind of carried around these like conspiracy theories about what's possibly going on because they weren't great at hiding what was happening. You know, it was that you didn't really know the impetus, but you understood that they were all. I mean, you know, it would be impossible for one department to just have like 20 or 30 very naturally super toxic people. There had to be some sort of reason why all of these people were literally the worst versions of themselves. Um, yeah. But I didn't know quite what the reasoning was. Well, no. Okay. So what I was going to say is like, yeah, we know, right? All of this stuff. We know how institutions work, how academia works, whatever. But like, we're here, right, to talk about Sora because that is sort of the impetus, right? And I think, you know, we, we sort of started talking about, yeah, there were the colors and all these things. But I think, like, you know, our conversations for the last 10 years, I think were really fueled by what we did that sort of ended up in a way countering this, you know, this attempt by the convener and the department to prevent us mm-hmm. from having like, a sense of community. I mean, um, it, let's say what we did. Yeah. And so it was what is now like very in the mainstream understood as like organizing against institutional violence. That's exactly what we did. We organized ourselves um, to create the supports that were necessary to live in the system of institutional violence, right? We didn't organize ourselves in any form of any systemic way, systematic way. We, no. like I said, we were heard. We we organized ourselves through feats of the imagination, through making up a name for ourselves. This is yeah. like an anthropologist by telling fantastical tales to each other about our cohort, 
by I mean just wearing the same color showing care for each other we baked or we brought in snacks every Monday um we we tried to show up for each other as much as possible I think that was a big thing is like the whole thing was predicated around ideas of care we wanted to care for each other because the department wouldn't yeah and it was very emergent like mm. it was just kind of spontaneous and someone would do it and somebody else would be like, oh, Naya Tara brought cookies last week. I'm going to bring something because we like eating while we're at the center because we don't have to listen. We can just focus on the food, you know. And I yeah. remember it was also like, you know, we basically it wasn't just care in terms of, you know, showing up in that space of the seminar. It was we didn't most of us didn't have supervisors or even our second supervisors there mm -hmm. who were either listening to us or supporting us and we showed up for each other so the thing that that seminar in theory was supposed to do was that oh we would reach each, read each other's work and comment on it which it wasn't happening but then what we did was outside of that seminar outside of see each other talk to each other and say hey that idea is really cool like, i'm working on that too have you thought about this i just read this thing and that might sound really normal for american PhD students and even you know having worked at different other universities and different departments of the, in the UK it's really normal for some people but for us it was absolutely just not available and that's something that else I think that you know was really I, I think care because it was done again with this thing of listening listening seeing you for where you are and trying to support each other to like not drown I mean it's sort of doing the things that we we're supposed to do as anthropologists but like we're only taught that that like deep listening is supposed to only be directed outwards, right? And never like to each other. Um, it shouldn't be a personal philosophy. It should only be part of your academic work. Um, and it's like weirdly worthless internally or amongst us. Um, and we know that this was kind of the case because like we knew people from other cohorts who were blown away by the fact that we all we're in community with each other. I think at the time we would have said like, we were all friends, we all liked each other. And it's true, we were all friends, but also there were. We didn't all like each other. We just yeah. decided <laughs> that we were all nicer. each other. Yes, yeah, which I think is more what community is, right? It's not like, oh, we just all, like the three of us ended up being very good friends and like have maintained a friendship over the years. But the whole group, you know, there were definitely like personality clashes and things. But yes, it was like a very purposeful, let us show up for each other. You know, let's give each other the time we need, you know. And I like we would end up every once in a while hanging out with someone that we didn't know very well in the group and spending time with them. And that was just it was part of showing up and being together and being in community. Um, and I think that's a really, in, I, you know, in reflecting on our time at SOAS, I think that is a big takeaway because even now when people talk about building community, we talk about the things we have in common or it almost is like a friendship kumbaya thing, but it's actually not. It's like making a decision to be a good person in the world in opposition to all these forces to support other people who you might not really like and you might not you know, you might hate the music that they listen to and think that they dress badly or, you know, don't like the way that they approach dog training or whatever it is, but you show up and you, I yeah. I Go think ahead. that's a really important point because 
what it was, of course, we had all these things like the practice of community that, you know, you and Maureen both mentioned through the colors, through the care, through everything. Um, but also it was that recognition of difference as part mm-hmm. of community and allowing for the differences to exist. So, for example, there were people who did not want initially to wear a color. Right. Um, but then, you know, and it wasn't like you must do this, but it's sort of like, all right you don't want to wear a color what you know for your thing what would you want to wear let's yeah and i think that's the key is that whenever we we met a lot of tension but Mm -hmm. each time we met tension we like because the important thing was the relationship Mm -hmm. we like worked it out and we worked it out through humor. We worked it out through pranks. We worked it out through negotiating. Okay, you don't want to wear any color except for black. So, can we? Can we try stripes? You know, <laughs> can we try pattern. And- yeah. No, I mean, and I think because this isn't an organization, right? I think that we've all had so much experience in, like, especially the nonprofit space. Um this like it was so much easier to do that negotiation because it was like through a very friendly lens right like ha 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 you always wear black why don't you want to wear color you know a little bit of gentle ribbing yeah and people came around be careful that's what they say in the old boys clubs (laughs) well (laughs) i think we need to talk about our 19th i was just about to say like all of this stuff around you know like community as emergent so i mean i think there was the practice of community but then there's also you know like all of us and thinking about this podcast like are talking about you know what is the future how can you imagine things differently and i think yeah we have to talk about how we imagined community (laughs) how we personified community right i mean it was such a i okay okay well we're gonna get into it but i do want to say uh-huh. I I use the term individual, and I forget that it is not a word. <laughs> now we can get into why. I mean, if Marilyn Sirthern says it's a word, <laughs> so maybe maybe for our listeners who don't read Marilyn Sirthern, we need to explain what Zubrovka. <laughs> well, let's explain what a Zubrovka is. Okay, Alexandra Zubrovka. Let's start with her. You go, Maureen. Well, one night. No, it was one day after our uh, research seminar. The convener had forgotten the name of one of the cohort members. And she was really, really pissed off about it because he just couldn't ever remember her name. Yeah, he would always call her Alexandra by by accident. And she was... kept on calling her Alexandra. (laughs) And she would correct him too. Yeah. But like he just wouldn't... Alexandra, Alexandra, who is Alexandra? <laughs> she was also Italian. <laughs> An angry Italian. <laughs> and uh, so that's sort of, and then uh, we started joking. Nine... I mean, in the same way that we were talking about this, like kind of emergence, you know, like we don't have to do anything through policy and regulation. We started joking, joking about it. This other person, she must be a great anthropologist. Because he's always talking about her. <laughs> That's right. And, and then kind of kept the joke going. And then late one night, Nayantara and I, Nayantara and I lived together. Yes. Uh, 
it we just were like what if she just became a real person and so we opened up a facebook account for her and sent a and an email and sent a letter of introduction to the entire cohort and um along with an explanation that she was a individual and here was her password and um go <laughs> and there were some very interesting and confused but so friendly and joyous also emails in the morning i don't remember any of them i just remember the experience of reading them one by one as they came in and i know was... i wish i had like access to those email accounts because yeah. imagine what that would be. yeah <laughs> um yeah she just then kind of took off she was her own person and she existed in the world and she got a last name and i don't know how she got this last name so the way she got the last name yeah, you know, it's a, she's a it Buka was, Harris. It was, I mean, so this is maybe I'm misremembering, but it was a party at your house, Nayantara. Um, and everyone was there. Mm -hmm. And that's also where we hatched this plan that Alexandra needs to write a research paper because her research topic was, you know, our cohort. Yeah, she was she was doing anthropological research on anthropologists. On anthropologists and and the you know and I think we even came up with some term like we were coming up of course what was it it was like lubricating the like oh yeah what was like you'll have to edit that out but no it's fun it's staying in but it was something like you know it the, lubricants of imagination or something yeah. i think that's what it was lubricants of imagination and because and you guys i wasn't drinking but i was there and we were all in Antares kitchen and i think it was perhaps or someone who had there was a bottle of vodka and they're like alexander is it, oh because we were also talking about we will send an abstract to I think it was the triple A or oh yes 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 the American needed, Anthropological Association we needed a name and it was like here's a bottle it says Zabrowka Alexandra Zabrowka it's a bottle it's a very famous Polish vodka that has a bison bison, bison grass in it and I don't know why I had a bottle I mean I like it but I don't know why I had a bottle I don't know why you had a bottle either. I think well, I mean a lot of people brought stuff for the party. That's what, yeah. But oh, and it's just a because we had that Polish. We had the Polish girl. Oh yeah, oh, she bought it. And I think it's important to mention, right, Maureen? Yeah. Um, just kind of disappeared. Was she? So there, she, at some point, Alexander Zaprovka sent text messages to people. And yeah. I think one of you told me this. I did not know this, but Alexander Zabrowka sent a text message, and she didn't know what the number was, and actually really freaked out. Because the text message she sent to everybody was, "I'm outside your door," or "I'm outside," something like that. And it really scared <laughs> bad, and she was yeah. done with Zabrowka after that. Yeah, and I think that yeah, I, I I didn't realize. I sort of remember this, but I think that. You know, we were like, that's cool. This is not, you know, it's this. this yeah, I think crazy. Alexandra Zabrowka sort of backed off on personal communication after that yeah. and became sort of 
a vessel through which we could discuss collectivity and imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because so, she would so. show up in physical ways, but not in scary ways. Like ev- for everyone's birthday, like she would bring them a cake. She would send them a cake. Yes. Right? Yeah. Somebody else. Yes. Exactly. Because she's always traveling. That was her whole thing. She's always traveling, doing other anthropology esque things. And so she always missed everyone's birthday, but she would send a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for Maureen's, some, we were at the, student union of the school next to our school where we like to go have a drink and I think that was for your birthday right a student a random student came in and said oh an Alexander Zubrovka asked me to bring you this cake (laughs) yeah and also during field work right because again like we were like in a way I think field work is when we all really came together like because weirdly because we were all very separate we were all very separate so and that's did- where alexandra zabrovka shone in yeah individuality and um so yeah so zabrovka also transformed right like um hold on she's appeared in the field by sending us postcards mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah sorry i didn't answer that i was gonna see so do you mean during field work you know she was there and uh, little known fact, there was a song that was also written about her love affair with one of the professors in the department. Oh my that, gosh, yes. That I met. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot I, about that whole story. I think I just pushed it out of my memory. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. It's also why she was reluctant to come back to SOAS. <laughs> after the field work oh my god why'd you have to remind me of that sorry <laughs> forgot all about that uh but yeah alexandra zubrovka transformed as we needed her to transform mm, yes that nimbleness to steal a word from our conversation with the afs people that nimbleness like kept her with us longer mm-hmm. yeah but maybe maybe this is a good point to actually talk about you know like that transformation of alexandra zabrovka in some ways of course was emblematic of like how our you know how sora was transforming but sora has continued to transform right Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about how it's continued to transform but also how we see it maybe transforming ahead yeah let's do it yeah yeah let's use sahil since you brought it up Ah, why did I do it? <laughs> Me and my stupid mouth. Um, no, no, but I mean, I think... smart mouth. Smart mouth. Smart mouth. Smart mouth. That's for sure. That's what got me in trouble. With. Uh, the convener. Sorry. The convener. <laughs> the convener. Apologies. I mean, you can just be pretty racist, though. No. But um, no, I think, yeah, it's important, right, to talk about how we all came together. But, you know, after the PhD, I think, you know, even during the PhD, towards the end of it, you know, we had people not coming back to London, coming back at various points and leaving. And, you know, our kind of, at some point, Zubrovka, Zubrovka's Facebook became less active, shall we put it that way? Is that a good euphemism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, but you know, the, the her letters uh, stopped coming with much frequency and then stopped completely almost. Um, the Facebook account, uh, I don't think it's been active. I don't even know if it's still there. I, I think we yeah. I have the password somewhere. But we can um, always look, yeah. Yeah, but you know, like it's also um indicative of how you know we as a community changed and how you know we were also keeping in touch with each other, not necessarily as the you know the herd, um, but you know, in those different groups, and it didn't, you know, we occasionally have come together, I think once <laughs> in COVID, uh, you know, for a big Zoom call and stuff. But you know, in you know, we still continue to be in touch just in different ways and we're working on we still continue to work in different fields but on similar things or you know even in similar fields in different ways and I think that you know it's um for me in a way what Maureen and both Nainta you know you guys brought up was that expanding this community of Sora I think this podcast in a way sort of part of that transformation of um of our community that began <laughs> that was yeah. no I mean I think like you know you brought up the zoom call we did in 2020 and it was the first time well I think we all met well most of us met in London when was that 2014 maybe 2010 no yeah because we graduated in like 2020 oh. no, uh for for the um when I was working with... Oh, yeah, yeah. That was 20... You weren't there. That was 2014. 2014, 2015, something like that. Yeah. It was so, 2015 because I had moved to Leeds, 2015. We had all gotten together. Whoever was in London had gotten together then. And it was because one of the people from our cohort had started um, like a company, like a online website thing. And I was working with them. And everyone showed up, like you came from Leeds, like everyone who who could, who could come really like showed up because that was sort of the, that's the basis of it, right? It's showing up. Even then, like later in 2020, we had that like larger Zoom call. And, you know, in all honesty, you know, people like, I'll say, right? I have nothing against you, you have nothing against me, but I don't think we would ever just like talk to each other. We wouldn't hang out. We're not we're not friends. We have very different views of the world. But he showed up because it's not about me as the person who like sent out an email to everyone, right? It's about showing up for this space in which we all show up for each other, right? It's it's communal. It's sort of like um uh what are those things where everyone like puts in money and then you get everyone gets money each month from those it's like a, oh my gosh, Sahil, you and I should be ashamed that we can't think of this word off the top of our head. <laughs> both of our dissertations. Um, what is the word? It's called intimac. <laughs> I can't remember in English. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you all have to put in. I mean, that's out, right? And it's like <laughs> no, no, no. It's um, it's possible. <laughs> But like it is this idea not of yeah. not specifically of friends getting together but of a place in which you bring you show up for each other and others will show up for you and which is a different thing than friendship i think 
Um, it's definitely a part of friendship, but I think like this specific space was like, it's not, it's not a friend group, right? Like Sora is the old Sora, not Sora the podcast, but the old Sora was not like a friend group. It was a community in a very different, well, not different, but like in a very uh, granular articulation of what is community, right? Um, and so I think that like, that's what Alexandra was. She is this collection of all of us that didn't exist because of our similarities or because of that kind of idea that we had to be there together. She was sort of there because she exists, because all of our care for each other kind of exists. And this is sort of the vessel that we put it in. Yes, she was a product of our circumstance and she could only exist in those circumstances mm -hmm. to speak. And then when our circumstances changed and we sort of dispersed, we, no, we were no longer the cohort, we were just ourselves. The relationships that we formed lasted for as long as they lasted, but Zubarovka sort of fell away. Yeah. Guys, this is also like, there's so much stuff that's written in trauma about this, right? You know? I mean, I tell people that it was like going to war. Like, that's why we all bonded to get together. We have, a, we had a trauma bond. We had the kind of bond that like people coming back from war have with each other. There was, it was bad. It was bad. I, I don't know how to like, I mean, there, there's articulate how bad it was. That we a lot of us were having suicidal thoughts during this time. That's the hard. fact that we had to create Sora and Alexandra Zabrovka, and here we are over ten years later talking about it. I think is like an ind indication of how bad it was. You know, yeah. It, yeah. but you know there is all this research out there on like you know I, I forget it was one of these things you know that they like to do now a lot of like looking at science and the body and emotion like about how a lot of PhD and postdoc students have the same levels of whatever I, I forget which stress and anxiety as people, in, as people in war and that's yeah. you know like there's actual research that's been done on it but i think this comes back to sort of the thing that i was interested in it's like you know we see these structures of like the mm -hmm. whatever but it's like you know there's an article written every month about it since at least i can remember since you know early 2000s um but yeah you know, well, for me, the stuff with Zubroka with Sora, it was an imagining, right, of an alternative way. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. that, yeah, like that's because what... we, we couldn't physically get out of the situation, but we could imagine our way out, so to speak. Yeah. And it speaks to what you were saying, Sahil, earlier about how the department and the convener wanted to atomize us, right? And like Zubrovka is the sort of embodiment, quote unquote, of our relationship against that. Getting together. <laughs> push against that or like no you're not we're we're so one that we are one person we are one creation i think that like you know it's probably not a topic for this um this podcast but we then actually did that together after field work right like there was an issue in the department where we actually did come together and be like no we're, you guys showed up in a way that I did not actually think would happen because it was at everyone's detriment to do so. Yeah. You know, Maureen, you told me to quit that first year. 
And you were very right. I think. In Wait, did she tell? Did she? She did. I think I meant walk away. Walk away. I did walk away. You, you were like happy. Yeah, but also because basically, you know, pushing me not to do the project that I got. Uh, that's right and i knew you wouldn't be happy that's what that's what killed you it wasn't i mean yeah. i hate to say that but it, it wasn't all the other terrible stuff that happened yeah. it's the fact that you didn't get to do the yeah. dream no exactly because they were trying to push me away from my dream too and i was like i'm not going all th through all this misery to not write about what i want to yeah. I uh, that's i mean that's you know that's exactly it like that's like what i've like been discussing counseling for like what? man not this time. i mean shall we explain this situation yeah i think i don't know someone else needs to go all right i mean maureen do you want to because <laughs> maureen was there okay all right oh, i got kicked cool. out of the department at the end of year three or beginning of year four Something Do you like want to explain that. for our listeners what that is exactly? Because it wasn't just that, oh, you got kicked out of the department. You got kicked out at a very crucial point. Yes. After... Very, very dirty way, if I can say that. Oh, yeah. Um, so I got kicked out after field work as we were like, we had to, in order to start our last year of the PhD, you had to turn in your first draft of your dissertation. and. I turned it in and the feedback I got on it was you are being kicked out of the department. Now, a few months prior to that, my supervisor had tried to also get me deported from the country. So Are I was contacting Homeland Security or whatever it is. Whatever there is. Because you were at a wedding. No, because I was home for Christmas and I had stayed a week or two longer at home and it was because you know there had been family medical emergencies that had happened and i had like moved my ticket told like emailed people in the department emailed my supervisor blah blah and had not gotten a response right so like if there is no response like hey no this is going to be a problem then i don't know that it's going to be a problem because honestly any sane person would be like hey you're having a pretty major family medical emergency sure it's an extra week you know and then that got rolled because the emergency like we thought it'd be fine and then there was something else that happened right um and you know the thing is the department wasn't very strict on these rules because other people had been in and out of the country and that's like you're not supposed to do that when you're on the student visa so it wasn't that the department actually cared. It was that my supervisor was trying to remove me from the department mm -hmm. without, but had no other leg to do so, no okay. other avenue to do so. So I, I, think, I mean, that's the basic. I think that's a really good explanation. But the one thing that I would add for our listeners is that, yeah. you know, what would happen, what often happens in any institution, right, is that there was a deadline by which any corrections need to be made. And what all of us saw, because we were all in touch with each other because we had by now become Sora and sh would share, you know, what was going on with us. Um, you know, and just 
correct me if I'm wrong, Nantar, but basically you had submitted, you know, uh-huh. your your document, which for many other people, uh-huh. uh, you know, they were told by their supervisors that this is just pro forma. It doesn't actually matter what you send. You're going to move on because we understand you can't write, you know, a thesis <laughs> or like the semblance of, you know. In the- one summer. In right? one summer. And it was many- the summer between coming back from field work. Yeah. And then starting the next academic year. And, and that was part of the major stress that we were under is that mm-hmm. we're constantly under this ever ticking clock. And and we were told by many people that this is just pro forma. However, because there was there's actually no oversight and there's no accountability for some of us, Maureen and myself included, and and Antara, whom people wanted to get kicked out, it could be made a problem mm-hmm. if they wanted it to be. And in Nayantara's case, what happened was you received Nayantara received no feedback until just days before the deadline for submission of any revisions. Mm-hmm. And the feedback was, this is unacceptable, right? Mm-hmm. Or something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. Which was another thing, you know, we were never told why things, you know, we were never given actual feedback. And so there was actually, it was done in a very calculated way. Yeah. Make sure that Ninter would not be able to provide, um, you know, revisions in time and therefore would not be able to pass on to the next level. And effectively for, you know, people who are listening, you have to realize we're also several, you know, of us were self-funded, like, Uh so, and this is, we're talking about, you know, we initially went in when fees were like, I think, you know, 8,000 something pounds a year. And in that first year, they jumped to like 10,000 even jump. So it's not just financial stress. It's not just constant immigration stress that you're going to be kicked out of the country. It's not just the stress that you're being told that you're incompetent and you don't know. But then it's this very real stress of not having money and like having invested a lot that is just going to vanish or you feel like. I mean, not having the support you need throughout. Yeah. I mean, that was a big thing, right? Because so I had to, I appealed that decision. We can get into all of this in a a different episode. But one of the major points of my appeal is like, I printed out all of my emails to my supervisor. And we like did a calculation and it was like 30% of them had gotten responses. Like, and I would email very specific questions. I'm looking at this. Do you have a reading recommendation? Do you have any literature that I should be looking at and just like literally no response. And that, you know, when you're doing a PhD, that was like what, three years of doing that or two years, two and a half years of just like that kind of, uh, what is it, neglect, I guess? Because I remember talking about it in this like weird, I'm paying for a service. And that's like not how I go through the world. That's like not how I measure things, but like, I'm taking on student loans in order to do this and I'm not getting any response from a supervisor that feels like I'm just not getting my money's worth in a very capitalist space. So I just want to explain something here. Like the problem with supervision wasn't just lack of response because in a natural super, if if a supervisor was more like a mentor and an advisor relationship, Mm -hmm then you wouldn't be having these very specific emails about 
what I'm looking for this topic, what do you suggest that I read? Because you would be having ongoing conversations and your supervisor would be into these topics and they would be getting you into these topics and they would always be suggesting readings and you would always be suggesting readings to them because it, there would right. be some give and take because there would be dialogue between yourself and your mentor. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the relationship that- No, and actually- because I had taken this issue to other people in the department to be like, can I switch supervisors, blah, blah, like I did it in conjunction with one of her other, my, my supervisor's other supervisee, right? We went to someone and said, we are having an issue and they acted very shocked. And they were like, no one's ever had this issue before. And we're like, well, both of us are having this issue now, <laughs> which is part of that Sora thing, right? Because I hadn't even thought about going to someone until I found out that this other person was like, hey, I have a meeting with someone in the department about our supervisor. Do you wanna tag along? And I was like, yes. And because that person otherwise would have tried to gaslight one of us into saying, no one's ever had an issue with this supervisor before, what are you talking about? But then the two of us were there and I remember saying, well, both of us are having the same issue. So something's going on. <laughs> Yeah. And that and was the right. advice that I received from this person was like, well, you can't expect too much. Ask specific questions. Mm. Yeah. And and I think, I mean, that makes sense because also Sahil and I got to compare our relationship mm -hmm. with our supervisor because we shared supervisors and we also learned to have zero expectations and not actually expect to be supervised. Yeah. But we, because our research was so close, we were... And I could get supervision from outside of the department, right? From people from the United States. So I was getting externally supervised. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to give as much moral support yeah. to Sahil as possible. So, like, we were able to find a different way out. Otherwise, we could have very well been in the exact same situation you were in. Yeah. And I, and I think that's what everybody knew. Everybody knew that we yeah. all could be in your situation. That's what, okay. So the person I think who really, who sort of led the charge with meeting with the department, I'm just not going to name names. I'm so sorry. Um, who had put together like an agenda and everything. I was like, why are you, why are you even doing this? I remember talking to them later. Like it was such a, I did not expect that response that like, we're going to go in there. We're going to demand some answers, some accountability. We're going to have a meeting. We're going to put together an agenda. Like I was so shocked that someone would put together an agenda to talk about what happened to me. Um, and they were like, because it could happen to any of us. If I it can happen to you, it can happen to any of us. And it was interesting because, because of what I had been through, right, with the supervisor, I had such imposter syndrome that there was a part of me that was like, yeah, well, I'm obviously the dumbest one here. I would deserve to be kicked out. And it was so interesting to hear from everyone else that's like, no, this could happen to any of us. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm so not so dumb. <laughs> I think we need to, you know, let the listeners know also what happened. Yeah. So, you know, I started off by saying like, you know, if we were talking about how Alexander Zaborko was this way for us to like kind of fight back and- Show up you know, with imagination. But we also, I mean, I think it then also allowed us to get to the point where we could come together. Because when this happened, I remember it was like, we were all talking to each other and we we're like, did you hear this? Do you know? And it was like, we have to do something. Because also, as you said, it wasn't just that it happened to you, but it's it was just 
it's an, and and not just that it could happen to any of us, but it was happening. Mm-hmm. And it already was like we there were people that were actively being trying to get that's true yeah 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 everyone was on a similar trajectory i just got to the end point before any of you and we had people we had people who chose to leave because they knew they saw it coming Mm. we lost one two three three or four people just in that period of time yep but also it was this feeling of like they have done this to someone like they have actually i think you know i don't think that we like how should i say this it's not that we didn't believe that it happened but it was anger it was like how dare this happen and we had to do something Mm. so i don't know maureen if you want to talk about like what maureen was there when i got the email this was the other thing is like i got this email that said basically you're being kicked out and then the convener and the people who were sort of responsible for this kind of bounced and handed all these cohort issues and departmental issues to someone who knew nothing about the history of this. Yeah. Who then like had to, we had to then deal with that level of incompetence. Anyways, so, okay. So I got, I got the email. I couldn't read it. I asked Maureen to read it. You can take it from there. All I remember, I don't remember reading the email. I just remember Nayantara like covering her mouth because she was going to gasp, but she made no sound. And then she was in the hallway between her room and my room. And then she literally, like her legs buckled under her and she fell on the floor. And I was like, Nayantara, this is the symptoms of mourning. Why are you you doing this? And she was like, amused at me but also like ready to die at that moment yeah and then she had me read the email so i understood what was happening and i was trying to like take it in and be supportive at the same time and then like once because nayantara is not one to like weep so she was like just started baking and no i wept for about five minutes i needed and then you just were like I have to do something, but I don't know what to do. And then you just started baking and and you just started using my bedroom as this cooking rack. Well, I I didn't have enough room in the kitchen to hold all the things I was baking because I stress baked for the rest of the weekend. Yes. And so Maureen's room ended up holding all the surplus baked goods. And then we brought them with us on Monday. Oh, really? Yeah, because we had so much baked goods. I mean, we're not bring baked goods and we filled in and then we like were slowly filling in the cohort as to what happened. And well, I, I think I emailed them. I emailed, emailed everyone. Emailed. Yes, because people were kind of circulating maybe like what color are we going to wear on Monday? Because it was the first Monday of the school year and they had wanted to do a mixer or something and then a seminar with the the new cohorts that's coming. That's right. And so I responded to the thread, hey guys, I just got kicked out. Like it was very sort of so you, like I mean, casual almost. And at that mixer, who's oh! introduced us as the weird cohort that always wears the same colors. But really? also, I don't know. So the new, so the, there's two things. One, it wasn't that they bounced just like of their own accord. It was that the convener changed. 
to this incompetent person, right? But they very easily then, again, there's there was no accountability mm-hmm. for what had happened. And I think we were all so upset at that mixer. We basically all stood there stone-faced and they wanted us, they wanted us to say how wonderful it was. And none of us said anything. And instead, when <coughs> was talking about how this department is so supportive, I think I laughed and Kate... Well, like, I heard about this, yeah. Because we got in trouble. We yeah. got in trouble for I mean, our we, bad behavior. Like, we, we were three-year-old children. <laughs> yeah, because, because we, we were not putting on good faces and making other people thrilled with the department. We were, we were, we were just like, we yeah. the seething anger and, off of us. And we weren't, I mean, we were all angry and we didn't hide it. Oh. We showed because, you know, like, and yeah. And they also used that against us at some point. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I, I remember us getting in trouble for our attitudes, basically. My gosh. But yeah, I, think- I mean, I had a meeting with because he offered to give me time to talk about it. And it was going to be after the mixer. So I did show up. I was not allowed to come to the mixer, but I did show up. And then we had a whole conversation where he had been woefully underprepared to deal with any of this. Like what was going on in my situation, what I think he was also coming straight from the mixer where all of you had made your discontent no <laughs> because it was also like we had had right it was sometime before the mixture that we had the meeting with them right maureen no it was after you guys it right? was all happening at the same time like it was all it was, like it was a little bit before because we want we i think we meet we, we, we tried to talk to Keith, remember we had the meeting before i i what? remember the, that day we had the meeting before, I don't know if it was the day or the day before, but we had a meeting before this mixer happened. Yeah. Because well, we were okay, told. here's the timeline. The timeline is, I got the email on a Friday, and the mixer was on a Monday. So if you guys were having, yeah. So I I know that we had the meeting the, before the mixer. I, I think don't we think might so. I think we had it after. I think the mixer was like insanely awkward. Okay. And I, I think, think I think as we were leaving the mixer, yeah. we were like, yeah. we want to talk to. And I think they were also yeah. like, we want to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> I got called out in the hall, like, you two, we need to talk to you. And we're like, you know. But I think also by that point, neither of us were afraid anymore. <laughs> yeah. Because are <laughs> we were so angry that we didn't yeah. care. Well, also because, like, I think you know, like, more the Maureen, you you had a much better sense of like self going into the PhD. I think I went to it thinking like, oh, this person is going to be like an advisor and a mentor, which didn't happen. But I think like after fieldwork, it just became so blatantly clear. And like with this up and entire, I think a lot of us were just like, oh, I have nothing to lose. So. But yeah. anyway, so we had this meeting, and I think it's important to talk about this meeting because, like, for me, that's like. You know, it was sort of a showing. What's interesting about the meeting? So you all called this meeting um, as a cohort to talk to the department, and you invited me to join because you also wanted to talk about what was going on, like how could this possibly have happened, blah blah. And I remember the department tried to tell me that I would not be allowed into this meeting. And I think maybe someone kicked up a bit of a fuss about that. And that's why I was allowed in the meeting, but I was not allowed to speak. 
and no one was allowed to address me or address my situation. I just had to sit there. And I think I sat between the two of you. Yes, I remember that. And I remember the Italians were just like asking, especially if I was asking really good questions. Like, it was like, why wouldn't you have told her before that, Mm -hmm. you know, things needed to change? Like, why, how did it get to this point? You know, I remember really pressing them, but we weren't, there was no answers. They felt pressured for sure. They felt pressured. Yeah. And I mean, that's what, you know, I'm going to bring it back. That's what showing up is, right? Like none of, like I said before, none of you needed to be angry at that mixer. None of you needed to call for a meeting and invite me and ask questions about what was going on with me. And I know that part of it is also like getting some answers for yourselves, but also it's putting your neck on the line a little bit. And whether you're angry or not, like that is, it is showing up. It is showing up for someone else. And like, that was, I think that almost, not to be cheesy, but that almost like got me through it. You know, it was like, oh my gosh, these people are really showing up for me. Like, wow, that's amazing. That's what I got out of this experience. Um, And it is what I take with me now as like the experience of doing a PhD. it's kind of why I don't consider myself an anthropologist because that's definitely not what I got out of that PhD. You're an anthropologist (laughs) and a folklorist. (laughs) You you know, we also got, I think if if I'm remembering the timeline correctly, we did get some minute changes like took over the research seminar and we had told her how we just hated the environment and she did that, change it to a... um, Q&A session where we, yeah. where people would ask questions about people's research as opposed to criticizing it. Mm. And I remember the other people scoffing that it was no, this was no longer of any academic value. I remember that. We also, Gosh. one of the things that we had said that there's no professionalization, that we're just treated like, you know, cash cows based on yeah. and what's the point of coming here. And so then they instituted this thing of like, like once or twice this semester having like a seminar on something like where to publish or when to publish. And the thing that was laughable, I went to one of those mm. was that a supervisor specifically had been telling me, do not publish, do not publish. And, you know, sort of using some ideas either consciously or subconsciously, but, um, and in this thing, we were told, oh, actually, you should think about publishing at these points. And I'm like, this is just a joke. Like, yeah. Yeah. It was a little joke. And then when we sort of, you know, and it was like, not only because they were giving us the opposite information to what some of us have been told, but also we had no time. Like, we could not publish and do all the things we'd be done in the time that we needed to submit this thing or like get kicked out of the program. Yeah. So- yeah. I mean, they told us, like, don't even bother about, like, conferences and blah, blah, blah. And I think we did that on our own. You know, it wasn't because anyone emailed us and said, hey, there's a conference coming up. You might want to submit. Go ahead. Sorry. They also created this this false sense of that we were running out of time. Mm -hmm. There was no need to do that. Mm -hmm. It could have been slow and steady, wins the race. 
like just plan it out, be methodical, make your deadlines. I get that. But it was always like, you're running out of time. You're running out of time. We're not going to help you, but you're running out of time. And so mm -hmm. there's always a sense of panic. And that's why I got done a year early. Cause I was like, I, I can't keep running at this pace. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was. Terrible. I mean, you also went back to Ohio because it wasn't. I needed my family. Yeah. I needed to be with my family. I knew I would not, I would literally not live through the experience if I didn't Right. Know. Which I think is yeah. helpful. You were able to get out of the space because like, yeah, just, I remember going into that campus even, I mean, it's hardly a campus, but like seeing that building would give me like heart palpitations, right? Well, like, remember, I used to take Valerian every time we said, and I would, and I started off just taking one Valerian before the research seminar, but at some point I was taking like four or five of them. Oh my God. I would always drink it with soda and then I would sit and burp and it would sort of laugh at me every time I burped that because Valerian tastes foul. It tastes like farts. <laughs> so. Oh, that's really interesting. So, I mean, to this day, I do not go there. I just, mm -hmm have to occasionally it does have a really amazing library and I've had to like look at some things but I just don't go like I don't like that space but what I'd started doing was whenever I would you know if I wasn't on my bike or even if I was if I had to go I would just go through every single park I could go through before getting there it's just like like green space yeah this is so nice even though I have to go to Mordor I guess it's a call yeah I oh gosh it was such a horrible place. But so do you think, oh, sorry, you were going to say something else. Sorry. No, I was just going to say like, you know, to kind of sort of bring it back yeah. to sort of what, where we are now, um, that experience in being like a very outside of our academic training experience, right? Showing up, demanding a meeting like this is organizing this is activism this is advocacy it might have been really small and on this very small level but it made a difference it made a difference they changed however slightly for the rest of your time there um it changed i think how i approached my life like i i did appeals this was actually very funny the whoever the new convener was trying to tell me like oh you know like an appeal takes a lot of time you don't want to appeal and I was like I'm not doing a PhD anymore what I have time like what do you think what do you think I'm going to continue doing my PhD like I have so much time now and I was so proud of my appeal it was all printed and in this big binder and tabbed and there was like an index it was beautiful anyways I think that that was a little bit of my foray into as an adult fighting the system, which I am now doing. Do you know what I mean? Like it, I was like, oh, I'm going to be an academic and I'm going to fight the system through these like more subtle ways. I'm going to write and, you know, not criticize anyone specifically, but just like through ac like academic writing. And then it's become like a whole like, fuck you to the system, <laughs> just very, I'm not interested in your capitalist bourgeoisie bullshit anymore. <laughs> and I think it was really that space or that that process. And I, and I think that's one of the interests I have is what people have learned being in the academy, but not from, yeah, or from not what their academics taught them, but for what they learned 
outside of that and how that's brought them to where they are now? I think for me, this this experience that you're talking about taught me about myself that I am I am a leader. Mm-hmm. Like I can herd people, but I'm not a but it also taught me the type of leader I am. So I'm like a cultivating, nurturing type. I thought you were gonna say a cult leader. <laughs> well, you're the cult leader, remember? <laughs> I I'm like like to ban- I like to bring people together and kind of encourage them mm-hmm. and motivate them, but I don't I trust them to like figure things out for themselves. And I learned I learned that about myself during this PhD. That's for sure. That's and amazing. That's really amazing. And I mean, I can see that because I feel like you talk about yourself before the PhD in a way that I don't recognize the person you are. Do you know what I mean? Did I exist before the PhD? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not for us, you didn't. (laughs) We all just like spontaneously appeared on SOAS's campus on that first day. (laughs) Choose the heel. Uh, What about, like, what did I take away from? Not to put my spot. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, I, I was actually thinking about something completely different. Uh, <laughs> sure. No, no, he needs to be the teacher. No, 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 it's because we were talking about Maureen, like, magically appearing. Like, literally, that's how I feel. Because I walked into that room and I just popped down next to you. <laughs> and we had, like, the same idea for a research project, the same supervisor, same like quirky ideas about like <laughs> you know maybe Maureen is a figment of your imagination that yeah, is being yeah. real. I had a dream well, about that once being a figment of somebody's imagination. It screwed me up for like a week. Do not make me revisit that experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. No, I think like it's hard. Like I think that there's some ways in which I am still processing stuff. You know, when I finished, someone was like, it's going to take at least five years to get over this PhD stuff. And, and really, yeah. And at the time I was like, Oh, ha ha ha. <laughs> like yeah, I'm put together. Um, but I think like there's some stuff like that, you know, I just, you know, it, it like any trauma, it just takes time to like work out of your body. And like, but I think like for me, definitely immediately, that year that we came back from field work, I realized, wow, I this process made me actually really see that I even though like I so I didn't see myself as an anthropologist going into this. I had a background in like all kinds of stuff and I have continued to do all kinds of stuff. But I was like, okay, for me anthropology turned into this, it was a toolkit. Uh... It's like I actually have all these tools to have every single year I had to change what I was doing and really grasp a complicated, you know, field and like come up with something. And I was like, wow, I actually, you know, I went into this thinking, I know nothing. (laughs) And sort of like, you know, and and Maureen, I have to credit you to this, I credit you for this is that, you know, you're, you consistently said to me, like, no, you know, doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) You make sense. And like, I walked away from this thinking, wow, all of us, are so we were so adept at very quickly analyzing recalibrating and delivering something for you know that's not exactly what i say uh you know and i that's kind of for me what i took away from this was like i lost the sort of fear of like oh i don't know how to handle something because i've just 
multiple things in very short amount of time with very few resources and true yeah so yeah i don't know that you know so maybe more self-confidence i suppose <laughs> no, i mean that's like you grounded yourself in your skills like you came into that phd with a lot of skills but then you somehow like mm. it, use a plant analogy your roots got deeper yeah yeah, yeah. no that makes sense i mean you know, when we first started, I was very impressed by Sahil's pedigree, not just going to Georgetown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, when we first started, I was like, oh, my God, all these people are so, like, they know anthropological things. I don't know nothing. <laughs> I was coming from such an arts background, so I was like, he went to LSE, and you had been working, and I was like, oh, damn. I am not cut out for this. But then I met other people who were in the same trajectory as me, and I was like, okay, I feel better. <laughs> That's why I just wore my Ohio shirt, because I was like, I'm not even going to pretend to be up to par. I'm just going to let everyone know that I'm from Ohio, and I like it like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, we should mention that Maureen did wear a different Ohio shirt almost every day. I or Columbus. Just to protest. <laughs> and now I have an Ohio shirt and a Ohio, Ohio sweatshirt. Oh my god! I need, to, I need to come to Ohio. I'll send it to you. I mean, I saw. I want to come. I want to come and see this mythical place of Columbus, Ohio. It truly is. Like I went to go visit for her kids' baptism, and I came away being like, I understand the magic now. <laughs> I was there for like four days, maybe less. And I was like looking at houses to buy in Ohio. <laughs> the magic is real. I'm going back. <laughs> she met a princess. Like on her first day, she met a princess. Sure, I did meet a princess. Uh, so, so go ahead. No, no, no. You come. I think we're going to say the same thing. So, I was just going to wrap up. Just to finish up on this one, we could talk a little bit about, you know, what people might expect and. Uh, yeah, I think actually one of the things we sort of missed with how we're talking about this podcast is that our plan is to do interviews. We want to get people in and talk to different people who are in the academy, out of the academy, whatever, some tie to the academy in whatever form, and talk to them. Like not just interview, but, you know, have a conversation with them um about something that interests them around these topics that we've brought up already um and just as like a kind of format note i think because we all live in different time zones and have very busy lives we're thinking about this as being a two host situation where it's always going to cycle through so you're not going to hear from all three of us every single episode um but i think yeah that's sort of what the podcast is looking like in our imaginations and, and that and, could change. And what we really would like is we don't want to just, we want people who are like thinkers and movers and shakers in their own sphere, whatever sphere that is, but we don't just want to know about their work. We want to know about their humanity. Mm -hmm. Want to know about themselves as people. Yeah. Um. So we want yeah, we want interesting stories and interesting conversations. Yeah, exactly. It's, 
important to mention here that you know we, we we're talking you know we're inviting you as listeners and others to join right the society of reluctant anthropologists mm-hmm. and i'm saying like you don't have to be an anthropologist because you know as i said for me anthropology is a toolkit it's an orientation it's an approach and i think all of us sort of share that so you know we invite you to to join us as listeners as participants maybe uh at some point i think we have some people lined up right guys yes uh, and however you want to engage you are part of the society of reluctant anthropologists now and you so start wearing the same color as the podcast <laughs> um okay so i guess this is sort of the end of the podcast and let's I think wrap it, it up It is editing me again. Hope you enjoyed that first episode of the Sora Pod. Um, I know we had a really fun time getting together and talking. We've got a lot of stories, but we've also got a lot of fun guests coming up um, who have really amazing, cool stories of their own around academia, community, knowledge, everything. Um, So... We will be posting um, podcasts on our website, www.sorapod.com, and also wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to get in touch, if you want to be on the podcast, if you think that we should talk to someone, get in touch at hello at sorapod.com or use the form on our website. We'll see you next time. No, (laughs) we won't see you next time because you're listeners. I don't know. I guess we'll, you'll hear us next time. How's that?